This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Obviously, when you sat down and structured a screenplay, how did you decide on the time frame and what you want to share? Because biopics could get very long. Yeah. Well, I think myself and the producers, like, we never really wanted it to feel like a biopic. I think we wanted it to feel like a like a character drama and, and the, for it to be able to live in sort of the intimate moments of their lives. And if we spread it out over this huge, long time frame, then it becomes like vignette or episodic. And so then it was like we knew that that was the principle, the way we wanted to tackle the story. And then... And then I just started to try and figure out, you know, what was a, where did the, what was the most dramatic arc in that time, in a condensed time that we could find. And I read, you know, the story about Venus's Vicario match, and I really fell in love with that as like the end point of where I thought this this story could end for her as a character. Um, and you know, I think that that I wanted to try and find the moment in their life where like the everything we we knew they would achieve would was in the crucible at that moment that it was either going to succeed or it was going to fail and these years were like the most most crucial so as a writer when you're doing writing real life people do you feel a pressure like because you, you want to show the good flaws the flaws and you know that's drama but at the same time they're real people do you ever feel pressure like how much you could show or how to balance that yeah, I definitely felt pressure, but I also knew that I, I wanted it to be a really multi-dimensional portrait, I mean, of the whole family, but particularly of Richard, and, and to not shy away from him being a complicated character. And that, that felt like the real thing that got me very excited beyond the scope of the story and everything that they achieved was that Richard was a really complicated guy. And that if we could capture that, I thought it would be it would make the story, you know, have have the feeling of like an independent drama but on the on the sort of background of a much bigger movie um and that it was gonna if we if we took away some of the like gray areas of his character that it was gonna ultimately like negate some of the inspirational aspect of what the family actually achieved because if that felt inauthentic then maybe the rest of the movie would feel inauthentic and and we never wanted that to happen Biopics can get really long sometimes. What was your choice to keep it in a kind of a shorter time period, but a more tense time for their lives? Well, Zach Balin, who wrote the script, picked the perfect window uh, for us to focus on. And that was the script that I read, and we really tried to... I thought it was a perfect insight into the Williams family, into their lives, and this little you know, period of time that nobody really knew much about, that we could discover things about the Williams family that, that we didn't know. So Zach, Zach chose it. I thought it was great, and we, we ran with it. One, quick, one more quick question. Did you feel any pressure, because you don't want to show too much of the uh, people's lives, flaws in their lives, or did you say, you know, we just got to tell the narrative story? No, I didn't think about that at all. We, we tried to tell it as authentically as possible. We had uh, the Williams family who were producers on the, on the film, who were there with us every day, who were able to tell us the real stories, how it really went down. So to have them, it was a, such an asset for us making the movie. What was the biggest challenge for you trying to play a real person and want to honor them, but at the same time you got to find your own way to play the character? Uh, honestly, the first thing that I connected with Venus is her heart, so that was instantly what drew, drew me to her. Um, but getting to talk to her, meet her family, and get to know how they were growing up, that helped me so much. But at the same time, I could I could be myself because there were so sim- so many similarities between us. So it wasn't too hard. So, but it, so meeting them really did kind of free you up, not to worry about anything. Definitely, for sure. And you know, Mr. Will, 
he became Richard, I became Venus, Demi became Serena, so it just felt real after a while. Uh, my question is, when you first read the script, was there a particular scene that really said, oh, I really want to play this, or maybe scared you a little? Um, well, the, the scene where Miss Orsine is doing, the, doing uh, Venus and Serena's hair, and that iconic look that they have that everybody knows them for, that was my favorite scene. Uh, so my question is, when you first read the screenplay, was there a particular scene that said, I really want to play this, or maybe scared you a little? <laughs> Let me see. What was the first? So usually, the, the way I judge a screenplay, I read it, and if I can't get through the first 20 pages without standing up and going to a mirror and acting the scenes out, I know I want to make that one. And it literally took me three days to get through the first half of the screenplay because I couldn't stop standing up and acting the scenes out and watching video and listening to his voice from literally the first moment. I was wildly excited to get to know Richard Williams, you know. Um, there's the on the 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 newsreel character that we know of Richard Williams, but I found out very quickly there was a whole other dude that was, you know, hidden beneath the headlines. Uh, how did you want to, when you were structuring the script, how did you want to structure Lita's flashback story to serve her current story? Um, well, you know, the flashbacks in my film are not um, exposition. Sometimes flashbacks serve to be like, and now let us explain to you what you've just seen. And, and I don't mean for them at all to function like that. I mean for them to function like the way a mind works, like where I could just been walking to get a coffee and like for what was actually 20 seconds, I was in some other place for, you know, I was in 1999 for a second, you know, and like coming here as a kid to Santa Barbara or whatever I do think our minds work in many different time periods at once and so if we're following a narrative of this woman as a mother and her experience it's going to exist in more than one time period uh, so for you you loved the book obviously what was the funnest challenge of translating the book into your visual you know sense Oh, I would say that the, the biggest challenge was to make sure that uh, people, people who knew nothing about this universe will feel welcome mm -hmm. because uh, I'm a hardcore fan and it would have been easy to uh, just go in that direction and please, uh, but I wanted to make sure that it's a movie that could be accessible to, uh, especially to a younger audience that will knew nothing about this universe and uh, give them the appetite to know more about it and, and uh, go read the book. So I actually wanted to ask you about the most climactic scene in the movie after, you know, Lucy does the speech, but really the betrayal is revealed. How do you, Nicole, you and Nicole approach that scene because it was so dramatic and, you know, climactic? Well, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the scenes where you see the genius of Aaron Sorkin how he wrapped the movie. Once you thought or you felt that the movie was coming to an end, then he has a surprise. Uh, the most groundbreaking surprise, emotionally speaking. And it makes so much sense in the story that it hurts. Uh, when I read the script, I, I, I found 
myself celebrating mostly every page of it, but especially that scene. I thought it was brilliant. How do we play it? We learn the lines. It's so well written that you learn the lines and you try to be focused on what the scene is about and nothing else, nothing more. And it was the third day of shooting. So we, we, we played the last scene on our, last, on our third day of knowing each other. So that was challenging. Well, I guess we can't really talk about Bruno. We're not allowed. Well, we can okay. sing about it. Okay. No. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what I loved about the, I mean, the character you're setting up his relation. You're setting up the character, but you're also setting up the misconceptions about him. How did you approach creating the song to kind of set up such an important moment in the movie? It's such a great question. Thank you for that. The 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 fact is, the first time you hear the song, you're like, oh, what a spooky ghost story, Montuno, all those terrible predictions. The second time you go, wait a minute. Those are the lamest prophecies I've ever heard. Goldfish die. People grow guts. People lose their hair. He's not predicting anything, actually. His sister controls the weather. Of course she's going to be stressed out on her wedding day. So it is one of those things where you tell the story as spookily as possible, but when you actually look down, at it, it, it's, it's got to have that sixth sense thing of like when you look back at the details, you realize, oh, there was a possibility that the, um, which is a larger theme of the movie, the way in which these prophecies are received is actually more spooky than, than the way in which they've been, than what the, the, their actual content. Yeah. You've adapted so many great Shakespearean adaptations. In some ways, you're adapting your own personal life in this story. What was the process for you trying to pull in your own personal experience to tell a narrative story? It was to try and make sure that a personal story was available to other people. So when I thought about how I rehearsed with the actors, I didn't encourage them necessarily to ask me documentary questions about my own family, but to... Um, bring accounts of their own family and their own experience into it to begin the process of making something uh, that was not solely um, uh, personal and individ individual but could go out to uh, a more universal audience. That was, that was the idea behind it. It's just making sure that it wasn't navel-gazing. It was trying to look out into the world for the ways in which this story of one family's challenges with certain kind of life decisions could speak to other people's. And final question, uh, how is it being back in movie theaters? Great. I mean, when you see a full house watching um, watching a film, uh, which I love to do. I mean, I'm a, I'm an inveterate movie goer. I go at least once a week. Um, it's it's great. I, I love the communal experience. I love uh, I love eating ice cream at the cinema, <laughs> and I generally have a great time. So I watch every kind of movie. And when I, when we've seen as we have so many people come and you know commit to seeing this movie, it's been a real thrill. The three the the main family. How did you work with them? to collaborate to get the dynamic, the family dynamic going? Did you do a lot of rehearsals? What was your process getting the family together? Well, we did rehearse. I always think there's um, some value in um, trying to find a way to just make people trust each other. So early on, you want to find a bit of shared experience that does that. So uh, we shared stories about background, you know, and uh, school experiences. And, for instance, Katrina Balf, she um, grew up... Her father was in the uh, Southern Irish Police. They were stationed at a border um, town uh, where violence was very regular because it was, you know, it was a very sort of volatile atmosphere. So she knew... Also, she was uprooted from a big community... Uh, that she was very familiar with into this much more isolated place that where 
her father wasn't necessarily the most popular individual for some of the population. So she shared some of those stories of her feelings of being unsettled. Jamie Dornan uh, shared stories about um, bringing girlfriends home, hearing noises outside that they thought were cars misfiring, and he had to explain were bombs going off, and, uh, and then proving it by switching the television on, and ten minutes later that same noise was being reported. And, uh, and, and everybody shared things like that that also allowed you to understand a bit of the sort of gallows humour that, that grew up from having to get used to um, violent events. What was the process of you creating the family bond between your other castmates? Because you obviously had to be close to the family. How did you approach that? Well, Ken is incredibly clever, and what he did, first of all, was get us in a room, and we, we shared a lot of our stories about our childhood and our families, and he posed many different scenarios, and, and from that sharing, we knew each other very intimately after about three hours. But then another thing was he got us to play games. We were playing rounders, we were playing basketball, you know, with the kids and everything. And it's a real leveler. And, um, you know, I think very quickly we all just felt like we were bonded. Uh, what was the key process for you working with the other actors to create that family bond? Because you were so close and intimate. How did you kind of work with the other cast members to create that family bond? Uh, well, it was extraordinary that uh, Ken Branagh, who's so uh, experienced in, in all different uh, genres, uh, media, brilliant. he set us a very simple exercise because we didn't have much time. We had about two days to get to know each other and rehearse and just talk through the script. Uh, and basically he sat down the four adults, uh, Judy Dench, myself, Jamie and Katrina, and we all told each other the stories of our childhoods. He said, we don't have time, so we're not going to pretend like improvisation how we get to know each other. Yeah, you start, Katrina. Tell us what it was like as a child. Who, just 15 minutes. So within an hour, we all knew about each other's childhood. You know, and sometimes when you get to meet somebody, it takes you a while to go all the way back there. So Ken had opened us all to each other because we knew things about them that were in a way very private, uh, very open about their siblings, about their parents, about their schooling. Uh, and in that way... He brought to us uh, a, an immediate opening and a warmth between us, because because we we told things maybe we're better kept quiet about, but, um, uh, and in that way, though, when we came to work very quickly, we all just felt very safe and very trusting of each other to be able to to free up, be open. Mr. Cumberbatch, what was the key finding Phil's humanity in the script? It's in the book, and it's, it's in his backstory, which is rife in the book. And it's in Jane's sensitivity to try and carry through this complex character and make us understand what the motivation is behind his toxic masculinity. And I think that's the, that was the key. I think that was more the shoe-in for her as me as that character than the stuff we had to portray him as in the first sort of two quarters of the film. But, um, yeah, I'm not interested in playing people unless I can understand them. How do you decide, like, let's take the end sequence, the most climactic moment, emotional moment. How do you decide when to use sound and not use sound? Well, there's the obvious um, action sequences that, you know, need, need full-on action sound effects, music, etc. And they need to be very entertaining. They need to be uh, very adrenaline-driven. Uh, but then during this film, knowing that it was Daniel's last outing as Bond... And also the, the fact that he f discovers he has a family and his love interest with Madeleine um, 
there were many moments throughout the film where we had to try and create an arc that allowed that emotion to come through and allowed us to scale down on what we were hearing outside and to also just try to focus the audience in on a quieter scene so it wasn't assaultive all the way through the whole mix. And, of course, that last sequence right up to the very, very end was uh, a tremendously long ramp into um, what would finally happened to Bond and what he's known all along for, you know, ahead of the audience, hopefully. Do you kind of enjoy sometimes doing the silent or the more quieter places where you can just use it sporadically, you know, the sound when you need it? Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes those are the harder sequences, to be honest, because we have then the great ability to focus on what we want the audience or the filmmakers want the audience to um, really cat hone in on. Uh, whereas the action sequences, they're, you know, they're normally fairly obvious. You're going to have gunshots, you're going to have racing cars, you're going to have rolling cars, you're going to have rocks, you're going to have shouting and driving music. But um, during the, the quieter sequences, they can be more challenging. Parallel Mothers is such a beautiful film. What was your initial reaction when you read the screenplay? Thank you. So when, when I read the script, I thought it was a perfect script. I was blown away by it. I was in love with the character. I knew it was a really, really difficult, challenging character, but I was really happy about that. I mean, he's never going to call you and give you something simple or easy he does, because he's not that person. And, and he does every single time such a deep beautiful study of human complexity and but not only with uh, characters for women also wonderful characters for men and I feel very lucky that I've been able to play for now seven of those characters I, I hope many more we have one scene struck my students a lot was, you know, Gary with the truck and you're sitting on the curb at the end looking out and realizing what's yes. going on. A lot of emotions are going through that scene. Yes. How did you kind of approach that scene? Well, it's actually, that scene is actually super poignant. I'm, I'm glad that you actually pointed that scene out because you see the scene right before that is Gary. He's like, thinks that he's gone on this roller coaster, like, oh, she's got it. She's driving backwards, but she's cool, calm, and collected. And then her sitting on that curb is her realizing like, oh, we're on two different planets I almost killed everyone like it is a miracle that we are alive right now and you think it was just a fun ride like that you've never had any sort of doubt and that's the thing about being that young as you think you're gonna live forever you do the craziest things you could ever think of and then when you're my age or Alana Kane's age she's a little younger than me in the movie but you realize like oh no you're not invincible and that's really her first inkling of oh I need to get my life together and then she just so happens to be in front of a poster of Joel Wax <laughs> which is where she gets her life together but no that is a very poignant scene. Uh, an obvious question, what made you want to uh, tell this story? Um, I think, you know, it's a remake of a French film and called La Famille Bellier. And when I first saw the film, I was very moved by the story at the center. But I also saw an opportunity to depict deaf culture and a deaf family on screen in an authentic way that wasn't really done with the original. So I think I just got excited about, about that potential because I, when I looked sort of for representation that was out there, it was very hard to find.
Uh, so how did the family dynamic was wonderful. They felt like a completely real family, which I really haven't seen on screen in a very long time. Yeah. How did you work with them together to create that kind of family bond? I think it started with the writing, just being super specific about these characters and who they were and basing, you know, the out-of-line sexual openness on my own parents and, <laughs> you know, the the rapport with my own sister, you know, and there's sort of the sister-brother relationship. So a lot of it is just making it personal and specific. And, and, then, uh, and then you find your actors and you really do a lot of work to create these characters and bonds and, and all the subtext going on in this family and... And you pull it out. Uh, how did how do you did you approach the comedy? Let's take this uh, this scene, the sex scene, where Roby. How did you approach writing that on originally in the script, but translating to the screen, working on set with the actors to make it actually happen? Um, the subtitles are what I wrote. When you read the subtitles on the screen, and then uh, I think we would just play with it on set. I mean, Troy is a brilliant signer. He's super funny and very creative with his signing and so we would sort of chat about you know what I meant by the line and then and he would kind of think on it and we would go back and forth and, and then he would do something different every take I mean the sex talk that he did with the kids I remember we shot and shot one side and then we were turning around and I said you know Amelia and Ferdia like this we've done this a lot, but you've got to play it like it's the first time you've seen it. And they're like, oh, we're fine. He's doing something different every time anyway. So it was just, you know, he's he's super funny. He's super funny, and he knows how to riff on a joke. Um, and so, you know, we, we're, we're a good match humor-wise. Our, our, our main question is, how much did you enjoy playing the comedic scenes, like the scene where Ruby brings a boy home and you want to have the sex talk? Oh, I enjoyed it very much. You know, I told myself I had really had to figure out how to tell that story to make it universal so that everyone could understand it. And it wouldn't even matter if a hearing audience didn't know sign language, they could figure it out, right? And so that was what was a beautiful part of our story because I had to gesticulate to really reach out to hearing people and to everyone. But it's an important message, safe sex. And so there was a purpose to it. One of the scenes my students really struck with was your scene where you're saying to your father in the truck. How did you approach that emotionally? Troy and I are very close, and we always have been. The minute I met him, we kind of had this kind of father-daughter relationship. He was away from his daughter, who was a coder, and she's my age. I was away from my father, and so we kind of just fell into this, this bond. And um, that scene we knew was very special, and we just had this moment while we were doing that scene he was feeling the vibrations and Troy pulled away from me and he said I'd give anything to hear you sing right now and he folded me into one of his hugs and we sat there and Sean called action and we didn't do it she cross covered so we didn't do it take after take after take and um yeah I guess something special happened and it, I think with independent movie making because you're kind of rushed for time it kind of brings out a rawness that's exciting to see on screen and I think that's what happened in that in that scene thank you so much You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.